This forum is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here and a proud member. Today's April 16th. You're with a virtual City Club forum. We're live from the studios of our public media partner, 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. Again, big thanks to them. Last year, the United States commemorated the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed and protected women's constitutional right to vote. Its passage marked the largest expansion of democracy in the history of our country and arguably set in motion much of the voting rights movement that continues today. And yet, as with most crucial moments in American history, the traditional story behind the women's suffrage movement is incomplete. Our retelling often, often focuses solely on Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, two white women, while failing to acknowledge the movement's roots in abolition and omitting the vital contributions of black women, working class women, and immigrants. Today, we hope to offer a more complete history of the struggle for voting rights and by connecting the past to the present, show how the work continues today. Allow me to introduce our Friday Forum speaker. Paula Giddings is the Elizabeth A. Woodson 1922 Professor Emerita of Africana Studies at Smith College. She's known for her writings on the complicated history of black women in America, including the book Ida, A Sword Among Lions, which was an award-winning biography of anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, which won the, also won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Biography and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She has written extensively as well on the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, one of the largest black women's organizations in the United States. We'll talk with Professor Giddings about the political tradition of black women, their struggle to be enfranchised, and how their activism led to the influence that black women have on today's electorate. If you have questions for Professor Giddings, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your questions at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. Professor Giddings, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Well, hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, and it is a, a delight. We wanted to have you a year ago. And uh, <laughs> we're doing it today by phone, but it'll something have to got, do. Yeah, something got in the way. Yeah, there's I don't something, remember. something got in the way. And, you know, as we get started, uh, Professor, I just want to acknowledge the, the heaviness of this moment today when we, you know, our conversation about electoral uh, enfranchisement is also a part of a broader conversation around social justice and racial justice, and which hangs very heavy over us all today. Um, when you look at the history of the 19th Amendment, where do you see that history beginning? <clears throat> well, uh, let me start with saying it doesn't begin <laughs> with Seneca Falls in 1848. Uh, that was organized by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, we now know that uh, that is a very that's very questionable, and that uh, to mark that event as the beginning of the women's rights movement. 
uh, it's been uh, considered that because Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony said it was and wrote uh, and authored or edited multi-volumes of history that said it was and uh, really um, uh, uh, lobbied for this to be the origin story of women's rights. But we know that it wasn't even a consensus that this was the origin story of women's rights until the 1880s, until after the Civil War. So the importance of this is is that, you know, origin narratives tend to structure the history, and they tend to tell you who belongs in it and who doesn't. And, of course, Seneca Falls, as we know, which was unlike anything before it, uh, was just white women, did not talk about abolition or race. And as you mentioned in that good introduction, uh, abolitionism is really at the source of women's rights. Uh, but this is, this is really what, it, what Seneca Falls is first in. It's, one of, it's certainly the, the, one of the, or at least one of the first conventions of this period that does not talk about race. When you say, Paula Giddings, when you say that it begins with abolitionism, abolitionism is where women's rights, the fight for women's rights begins, um, Help! A, could you unpack that a little bit? Because I, I... Well, uh, just about all of the early suffragists uh, were first abolitionists. And, of course, and it's the abolition movement, and there's a, a number of reasons for it, but that certainly the abolition movement is the, is the movement that attracts women at, in a particular era in which they are looking for uh, they're, they're, they're looking for a means uh, to deal with their own, <coughs> their own oppression, uh, and they also a means to do good in the world. This is sort of an evangelical uh, tradition. And what better than to try to eliminate uh, slavery? And as they get involved in the abolition movement, they begin to understand oppression as a structural thing, not just as an individual uh, issue. They began to understand the language of anti-discrimination uh, rhetoric. They begin to understand how to unpack themselves, how they are oppressed, and how they are discriminated against by understanding this uh, through the lens of, of race and through the ends of uh, slavery, uh, lens of slavery. And so they, so they come to uh, women's suffrage and women's rights uh, well healed in uh, understanding of, of how to mobilize uh, against uh, uh, mobilize against depression and to also and understand the language about it. Bring us up to speed then, or perhaps that's not the right the, the right way to talk about it, but, <laughs> but because it's not really up to speed. But, but help us understand then, you know, by the time that Seneca Falls happened, um, what had been happening among freed slaves, among black women, that was being ignored by the white leaders at that moment? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Uh, if we look at this time period and if we just sort of um, uh, uh, increase the aperture a little bit and look all around at what's, what's happening. In the 1840s and 50s, I mean, there's debate about the extension of slavery into the West. 
and there's a, 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 a Mexican-American war in which uh, Chicano women are trying to hold on to their property rights as Anglos come and, and take, uh, uh, take, uh, take land. Uh, and the Irish are coming in uh, as immigrants, as very poor immigrants and needy immigrants, so that there's, that, there's also uh, uh, that issue. And, of course, there is, this is the period of a genocidal period of Native Americans. <laughs> Uh, 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 that's that's also happening. There's a there's a revolution in uh, Germany, and there are refugees coming, German refugees <coughs> coming to the U.S. So there are so many issues uh, whirling around uh, in this period, and to think that uh, uh, someone could have a rights convention that only talks about individual rights. Uh, just and among white women is 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 is, is quite incredible, actually. And in the uh, post Seneca Falls, and then uh, during Reconstruction, what uh, the, tell us help us understand the true story of of those ensuing years and decades that led up to the Nineteenth uh, Amendment. Uh, well, uh, we, we we know, and, and this is a story I think is pretty uh, familiar. Uh, we, we know that. Uh, um, you know, a, a lot of these, a lot of the conventions are suspended uh, for the Civil War, and after the Civil War, <clears throat> and the passage of the Fifteenth Amendment, <clears throat> which gives a black man the right to vote and not women, that this splits uh, the suffrage movement, with Anthony and Stanton on one side, and Lucy Stone <clears throat> and others on the other. Uh, Stanton and Anthony, of course. Are, uh, and understandably, uh, really feeling betrayed <clears throat> about this amendment that women aren't, aren't going to be able to vote. But <clears throat> less sympathetically, uh, and they go on a nation, a, a national tour, which really talks about uh, um, the uh, which which has the, this vitriol of racism against black men. I mean, sort of the idea of women first, meaning white women, and, you know, and the Negro last. And the idea is that how can you white men in the legislature uh, enfranchise uh, black men who are dangerous, who are low, who will oppress us, uh, and, and is also nativist, it's also anti-Irish, um, and uh, so, so it's uh, the uh, this this idea of trying to gain the vote by saying that white women of the republic need to be protected against these vicious men is a legacy that really echoes, you know, into certainly later periods when we're, when uh, uh, when lynching begins to increase, when there's a great deal of violence against against blacks. This they really begin that language uh, there uh, after after the Civil War, uh, and, and and it's quite it's quite egregious, uh, and, uh, and uh, so then uh, uh, by the turn of the century, by the 1890s uh, and the 1900s, uh, the suffrage movement, uh, we know that it comes, supposedly comes back together, but it comes back together uh, under, uh, under Stanton and Anthony, which means that the same ideas are perpetuated, uh, and, uh, uh, they, and this 
combined with trying to attract Southern women, or Southern white women, and trying to attract uh, Southern uh, legislators who they need, of course, to pass an amendment, um, they begin to marginalize almost completely <laughs> and exclude uh, uh, black, black women from uh, the movement. But black women are, they, uh, uh, it's quite amazing that they still, some of them still try to deal with um, the predominantly white movement, but in the meantime, they're also forming, forming their own uh, movement and, and, and uh, ideas around suffrage, uh, mainly through, not just, but mainly through uh, the National Association of Colored Women, uh, which is founded in 1896, which has its own suffrage department, uh, which by 1916 claims 100,000 members all across uh, the country. And so they're quite active in the suffrage movement, and, and this isn't talked about, <laughs> written about quite as much as it, as it should. But the idea of black women, of course, is, as Della Hunt Logan uh, said, she said, you know, if white women think they need the vote for protection, <laughs> black Black men and women need it even more. So there is, from the very beginning, and even from the very beginning, black women have been very, black women activists have been very mobilized uh, to vote. Let me uh, jump in here to remind our listeners that you're with the City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our speaker today, Paula J. Giddings. She's the Elizabeth A. Woodson 1922 Professor Emerita of Africana Studies at Smith College, also author of Ida, A Sword Among Lions. We had originally scheduled her to speak last year on the 100th anniversary of the 19th of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And uh, here we are one year later, picking up where we left off, as with so many things. And it's really a delight to have you with us, Paula Giddings. Well, thank you. Um, Paula, I want to ask you um, to talk a, about the unique contributions of Ida B. Wells. <clears throat> Ida B. Wells, and, and, and to stick a little bit to the, well, the first, uh, uh, quickly, uh, uh, Ida B. Wells <clears throat> really um, is a black woman uh, uh, journalist, an investigative journalist, uh, who begins the first, the nation's first anti-lynching campaign in 1892. Uh, and uh, uh, she um, uh, uh, mobilizes um, uh, the, the nation, really, uh, uh, and, 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 and makes people understand the uh, uh, importance of, uh, of lynch, lynching and, and, and how toxic it is uh, to American culture and uh, to the country. And, and of course, she, in, ter in, in terms of also looking at suffrage, she's really the first person, or certainly the most articulate, in understanding the relationship between lynching and racial violence uh, and the need for uh, political empowerment, uh, and therefore uh, suffrage. Uh, <clears throat> So, uh, so she's also an ardent uh, suffer suffragist, uh, as well as an, uh, a uh, courageous and bold uh, anti-lynching uh, advocate, which, of course, uh, she begins her advocacy in the South, in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, after a lynching of a friend of hers, uh, and uh, is exiled to New York uh, as a result of that. 
and then finally settles uh, in uh, in Chicago, where she becomes also one of the great reformers uh, uh, in the in the nation. She, of course, she made, she sustains her anti-lynching camp, uh, pe- campaign, <clears throat> but she's also she also starts the first Black Women's Suffrage Club uh, in uh, Chicago. She has a settlement house where she helps uh, Black migrants. Uh, she's a co-founder uh, of the NAACP. Uh, she will run her, uh, herself for a state senate seat uh, in uh, in Chicago. So uh, she's quite an extraordinary figure. Specifically with respect to her activism around the 19th Amendment, though, um, how did how how successful was she, or what what uh, challenges did she encounter in trying to? Advance the cause for for black women. Well, there's uh, there's a of course there's an interesting story maybe to frame this. Um, as we know, uh, as many people know, there's a major women's suffrage march in 1913 uh, um, uh, on the eve of Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, uh, uh, where you know thousands of women will really descend in Washington D.C. and march. <coughs> And the word had gone out uh, that black women were to uh, march in the back. The, the organizers of the Women's Suffrage March thought that uh, Southerners particularly uh, would be offended if black women marched alongside of them. And Ida Wells was in the Illinois delegation uh, just soon after forming the Alpha Suffrage Club and, and, and came to Washington and with the majority white uh, delegation. And by this point, Ida Wells had been very uh, active in the suffrage movements uh, and the women's movements there in Illinois, in, 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 both in the interracial movement as well as predominantly black movement. Uh, and she's suddenly told while she's there rehearsing uh, with her colleagues that she is not to march with the Illinois delegation, but to march in the back. Uh, and uh, she, uh, the group discusses it. They finally decide that that uh, they will go along with the organizers. Uh, Ida leaves uh, the group, uh, uh, and uh, the, you know they when they start marching, um, all of a sudden she it's just a great story. She reappears in the crowd, and she takes her place in the middle of the delegation and walks with the delegation. Uh, along the suffrage parade route, uh, and what this, but one of the reasons, one of the things we don't always think about in this story, and of course, and this is about uh, demanding one's um, place uh, in uh, the suffrage movement and symbolizes that uh, and the refusal to be excluded. But there's also something else going on. Uh, Ida Wells uh, in uh, in um, Illinois. Illinois has just passed in this period a municipal suffrage bill, uh, which allows women to vote for municipal offices like mayor and aldermen, etc. And Ida, as soon as that bill is passed, and she's helped get that bill passed, she begins to mobilize black women to be, as she says. Uh, <coughs> Uh, and an electoral power and force in Chicago politics. And one of the first things that she wants to do uh, is to make sure that there's black representation 
uh, in the burgeoning black ward uh, of, of Chicago, which are more and more blacks, you know, this is a period of the migration, more and more blacks are coming into Chicago. They're funneled into the second ward, uh, which is now probably majority black for the first time, but is still represented by whites. Uh, so so the first thing she wants to, to talk do is a, a sense of a self-determination. Black women have always understood the connection between political power and suffrage, which not all women have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so she, so she wants to, uh, the first black alderman uh, to be uh, elected in uh, Chicago. And, and, and by George, she does it. She mobilizes uh, women. She, they register people in the ward. Uh, and, uh, they work very, very hard. Uh, and I'm, I'm simplifying the story because a lot is going on back and forth. Mm-hmm. But indeed, if you look at that election, uh, that the uh, the you could look at the figures and see that uh, black women are the reason why uh, Oscar de Priest becomes the first black alderman in Chicago, mm. he, and he will later become a U.S. representative and the first black congressman since Reconstruction. Um, but uh, but but this is oh, this is as a result of the mobilization of the Alpha Suffrage Club in Ida Wells. We're talking with Professor Paula Giddings. She's the uh, Elizabeth A. Woodson 1922 Professor Emerita of Africana Studies at Smith College, author of a award-winning biography of Ida B. Wells called Ida, A Sword Among Lions. She's our Friday Forum speaker at your City Club of Cleveland. And if you have a question for her about the role that African-American women have played in advancing voting rights uh, throughout history, Give us a, send us a text to 330-541-5794. That number again is 330-541-5794. Or you can tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. The Q&A uh, with Paula Giddings with your questions is coming up in about seven or eight minutes. Um, Paula Giddings, the, as you tell this story, it is very clear to me that Ida B. Wells is probably the reason why Lori Lightfoot is mayor of Chicago. Uh, or one of the many reasons. I, I think you can make. I think you can make an argument that uh, uh, that Chicago, uh, that Ida Wells was so instrumental in mobilizing women in Chicago politics. You know, there are other suffrage organizations follow. Um, Ida Wells works at the Alpha Suffrage Club and other suffrage organizations work not just for black candidates, but also white women candidates that she feels, you know, this is a progressive period. Um, and so, uh, uh, and so, uh, and, and black women do become a power uh, in electoral politics uh, in Chicago. And, uh, and I, as I, you know, and I say that, you know, there's, there's no, uh, which makes Chicago politics even more powerful in general. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, I think there's no coincidence that the you know first black woman U.S. senator Carol Mosley Braun comes out of Chicago politics. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, Barack Obama comes out of Chicago politics, and and uh, and of course the Chicago mayor comes out of, the, of politics. But these are and these have been uh, uh, there. There has been a a long uh, and hard fought uh, context. Uh, that made their emergence uh, possible. And, you know, to 
to sort of make the connection very explicit that I think is probably implicitly uh, emerging in, in the minds of our listeners right now, the city of Cleveland, of course, had the is, uh, you know, the, the city that, that launched the political careers of Carl and Louis Stokes. Absolutely, yes. Yes, and, uh, and my friend Marsha Fudge. And uh, Marsha Fudge. <laughs> absolutely. Who, uh, uh, so, yes, uh, uh, we, we see that these, um, <clears throat> that uh, uh, these, uh, uh, are, and what, what, what's making me, I, I wish I could really articulate the challenge and the difficulty and the hard work, you know, for it to make it happen. When we see it, we just sort of see, oh, isn't this isn't this nice? Someone let them win. <laughs> but it's not uh, that though, is it? it? I mean, it's there. There is something unique in American history about the role that African American women have played. And as we've been talking, I've been thinking about the most um, pressing and insistent and uh, vital voices on voting rights over the last few years. And they've been black women, Latasha Brown, Stacey Abrams, and others. And there, there's, there's no one else who comes close to my mind. And I, I'm sure that people will be correcting me on Twitter right now and offering other names. But um, Absolutely. But let me again remind you of the long, of the long you know, legacy of 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 them of, of their emergence, uh, 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 for, and uh, you know I think about you know during the Reconstruction period before women could vote, uh, when men got the vote in Reconstruction, uh, women were as as politically active even though they didn't vote as men were. Uh, they used to have these huge forums where women were very important, where their opinions were sought. And which they had a great deal of influence in what was happening uh, politically. Uh, the black women have been very political within the church uh, in terms of leadership and and, uh, and 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 keeping their power within the church. And that's a, another that's a long, interesting uh, uh, story. Uh, so they so they have they have been very they've been very political uh, for a, a long time, understanding the connection. Between empowerment and and also their protection, you know, Ida Wells was one figure uh, who she uh, came of age in Reconstruction. She saw what what happened when her father and other men got the vote, and how that community that she lived in, Holly Springs, was was pretty was thriving, and uh, and blacks leadership had come to the fore. And then what happens when they lose the vote? Because they're, you know, disenfranchised, and so she sees also what happens with disenfranchisement, and this is when lynching is on the rise. This is when violence is on the rise. This is when mass incarceration is on the rise. So uh, we have long understood the relationship between voting and not just individual rights, but a kind of collective need uh, for protection and for power. And so I think one, that's one reason why black women have been always, always been uh, instrumental uh, in, uh, in uh, voting rights. If remember people like, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, I mean, they, we fought for voting rights when it just seemed it would be impossible that would ever happen. Uh, and uh, I, I think some of this has uh, also to do with a kind of, a, a a sense of part of our culture, which is this kind of, this kind of prophetic vision, uh, able to work for things before we can even actually see a way that it can happen. 
you know. You know, Stacey Abrams talking about being governor of Georgia? How impossible is that? And yet here we are on the precipice of it. Georgia turning blue? How is that possible? Who, who thinks about who's going to work and sacrifice and, and put your life in danger for a vision that seems that far off? You know, not many, but thank goodness for those who do, because here we are right now. You know, I'm reminded as you're as you're speaking about black political power that several years ago in in 2019, when our community gathered in many different places to celebrate uh, the the 50, you know, looking back at, at the 50th anniversary of the election of Carl Stokes to the to the mayor's office yes. and the career, you know, the launching of those careers of, of both Carl and Louis Stokes. Yes. That Cordell yes. Stokes, the son of of Carl Stokes, had said at a at at one point that we should not mistake this as some sort of nice sort of civil rights story, but that this was very clearly, and his father was always very clearly focused on black political power, that yes. that is very different than than simply a sort of feel-good story about civil rights. That's right. Or, or the first person to do this or that, or, you know, those, uh, and sometimes that, and representation has its place. Uh, and that uh, emblematic, uh, idea has its place, uh, but but sometimes we lose the uh, fact that the, it's it's power that's important. As a historian, Paula Giddings, how do you see what has been happening, particularly in just these last few months since the um, since the election uh, in November of uh, of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris? We and I can't believe we made it a half hour into this program without talking about the fact that there is now a black female in the vice president's office. That's right. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, and, and let me just say, I'm a journalist who writes history rather than... Okay. <laughs> That's the way I think of myself. Well, uh, the, well, um, uh, and I'm thinking specifically, Paula, about yeah. the, 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 um, the, the, the voting legislation, the electoral legislation that has been passed in many states by Republican legislatures that uh, many accuse of, of rolling back voting rights. But how do you see it? Oh, there's no question about that. You, you know, it's actually, if you, if you understand what the radical rights has always wanted to do and has been doing for the last 50 years, this is, this is just a, 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 one of the culminations of it. The radical right and the libertarians, uh, Charles Koch, etc., always had a plan, we know, that, you know, their views and their ideas are not popular. They can never win it through a democratic, get their ideas through democracy, particularly around capital. Charles Koch said something like, if capital is going to be free, democracy must be chained. And so they have, for, for, for ever since, uh, and there's a his, historian, Nancy McLean, who talks about this, since, certainly since uh, uh, the Brown versus Board of Education, really been talking about how to, how to keep democracy at bay, how to keep voting rights at bay, how to uh, see uh, state legislators um, with uh, people on the right, how to keep uh, uh, very, one reason why they emphasize so much more than Democrats the need for judges, because they need to legalize 
these disenfranchisement efforts in a way for them to be sustained. And they've been very clear about, about what they had to do. And now and we're seeing it. Uh, uh, it can, you know, can it be a coincidence that 47 states suddenly have these disenfranchisement measures? Absolutely not. And it's very much the same sort of it, – it's, it's been um, – uh, uh, we always see this 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 idea in in, in American uh, political culture. Some might see irony in the fact that Ida B. Wells was herself a member of the Republican Party. Well, uh, uh, remember that that the Republicans for a long time was the party of Lincoln. The the they were the progressives in the American they political were, they were the, they ecology, were, yeah. or at least they were more progressive than the Democrats and Republicans are. <laughs> Everything's relative, <laughs> mixed, isn't it? A mixed message. But uh, but it's not until uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt that uh, blacks begin to uh, change uh, to change. Well, not even so much change parties, but they do support him. You know, we're talking uh, with Paula Giddings. She's a professor of Africana Studies at Smith College, the author of an award-winning biography of Ida B. Wells, and we're talking about the sort of the, a look back at the role that black women have played in the fight for voting rights and the fight for suffrage, for, for enfranchisement, looking back at 100 years since the passage of the 19th Amendment. If you have a question for Professor Giddings, please text it to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794. Or you can tweet it at the City Club, and we will work them into the program. There's a, a group of uh, ladies from the Delta Sigma Theta sorority uh, at Eaton Corporation who are sending their greetings, and um, oh, and I wonder if you could talk a little. Back to them, I look forward to seeing them later. Yes, I know, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your writing about Delta Sigma Theta, and why they are such an important force. Oh, indeed. Uh, um, the uh, I, I was very interested after writing my first book. Uh, 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 about uh, mostly about uh, about uh, about the role black women played uh, in racial movements and in gender movements. Uh, I wanted to write a book about a black women's uh, organization, and uh, I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta. I pledged the Alpha Chapter at Howard University, and uh, was very taken uh, with the. Uh, this idea of in this in a country like this, this idea of women coming together as as sisters coming together in a sisterhood, not just in a network, not just among friends, which is th- th- all that as well, but this whole notion of 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 a sisterhood, of sharing in a in a particular way, and of a history, you know. Uh, of uh, an organization that's that's based on that foundation, and that grows to tremendous numbers all over the country, and also many parts of the world, uh, and that has um, uh, that comes together over issues, so many important issues, um, uh, uh, as well, and that forms a foundation uh, for us. Uh, for black women, you know, who often find themselves sort of out in the desert, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, it was it was a joy to write about this history and about some of the most extraordinary uh, women 
uh, and also they're learning leadership ideas uh, uh, through uh, through uh, the the sorority. You know, uh, this is the sorority of uh, of Barbara Jordan, uh, of Shirley Chisholm, of Patricia Roberts Harris, of Marsha Fudge, uh, of Sadie T. M. Alexander. Uh, of so many extraordinary women, and I said, "What is it? Let me, let me try to understand what it is um, that that provides both this this sort of political vision and this nurturance for us." You know, as you talk about uh, the the role of those women, and and you mentioned Marsha Fudge, the new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, and formerly the the congressional representative from the district in which uh, we're broadcasting right now, the 11th uh, congressional district, and formerly district. the president of Delta Sigma Theta, and formerly the president of Delta Sigma Theta, and formerly <laughs> right. the mayor of Warrensville Heights, Ohio, That's and formerly right. the chief of staff to Congresswoman Stephanie Tubbs Jones. Um, but I was also thinking about the. Um, you know, we mentioned Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, earlier, and the question from one of our listeners asked if you could just talk about the effect that her uh, her occupation in the vice presidency might have on the nation. Well, uh, uh, it's really extraordinary to think about uh, a black woman who is a whisper away from the presidency of the United States of America. Um, and uh, 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 and and to think about everything that happened, I mean, since 1619, <laughs> to make this a reality and a possibility. And of course, she has before her a tremendous, a tremendous opportunity to have a, have a great impact uh, uh, on. On, on the country, uh, and to and you know to also see someone who looks like you uh, in the vice presidency. I was I was on a, I was on a, a, another uh, program with a very young, uh, very young woman, and, uh, and and I said, boy, you know, you how fortunate you are at your age. She was in her twenties. She was still in. Uh, uh, she was just out of college. I said, how fortunate you are uh, to, at your age, be able to see that a black woman can be vice president of the United States. I mean, I, and I started thinking about how this would affect her pathway and affect her sense of self and affect the po- her sense of possibility at, 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 at that, that age you know, versus those of us who felt like this could never really be possible, with all the racism and the sexism and the classism in the in the in the country. So this is an extraordinary moment uh, that she becomes uh, the vice the vice the vice president uh, uh, of the uh, United States, and I'm, I'm just looking forward. It make me look forward to. Um, what, uh, what, 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 is, what is to come? Here's another question uh, from our audience. Could you comment on the relationship between Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and its impact on the suffrage movement? The questioner notes that they had a friendship that fell apart because Frederick Douglass refused to lobby to include women in the 14th and 15th Amendments, <clears throat> um, and likely because of the disagreement Susan B. Anthony 
uh, may have used some less than appropriate language about race, but nevertheless, yeah, less he, than appropriate <laughs> is right. <laughs> um, nevertheless, <laughs> she she spoke at yes. his funeral though as well. Right. Yes, that's right. Uh, yes, which I which I've uh, 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 written about. It's very interesting, uh, and it's a real lesson of how people can be. Susan B. Anthony, in her time, uh, was. Uh, uh, was one of the very few whites who really had social relationships with black people on a on a pure, on pretty much a pure level on one sense. You know, she was also uh, a person who was very supportive of Ida B. Wells and Ida Wells's campaign. But let me get to the question. Of course, Frederick Douglass is there at Seneca Falls, and. Uh, and uh, he, as the story goes, at least, uh, he is when women are hesitant about uh, uh, calling for women's vote, he says, well, you, you must do it. And, uh, and of course, he's so eloquent and, uh, and so highly thought of that this sort of helps the debate. And women do then, in their <clears throat> declaration of sentiment, say, yes, uh, the vote is I- important. Uh, of course, they split over the fifteenth uh, uh, over the fifteenth uh, amendment, and I, I think they would understand both of them. At least Frederick Douglass would understand why Anthony uh, and Stanton would be upset about the fifteenth amendment. But to have that racist campaign was just so extraordinary. Because one thing about black people, they always sort of maintain after the amendment maintain ideas of universal suffrage. This was not happening uh, with Anthony uh, and Stanton. Um, uh, One of the quotes, I I wrote down a quote. You talk about less than appropriate language. One of the quotes is, listen to this, this is uh, in their editorials uh, uh, after the uh, 15th Amendment. Uh, as 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 the celestial gate to civil rights is slowly moving on its hinges, it becomes a serious question whether we had better stand aside and see Sambo walk into the kingdom first. This is the kind of language they use. Wow. Uh, and I, I could give you more, <laughs> but uh, uh, so um, uh, 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 so it is now. They do come to, now it is true, the family actually asks Anthony later um, to give, to memorialize uh, Frederick Douglass after his death in uh, 1895. And there is, um, uh, Douglass stays very much involved with the women's rights movement, even though there's, even though he's been excluded, he was excluded from the first, he would go to their conference, to the conventions. But he was excluded in their convention in Atlanta, again, because they didn't want to offend. This is after he got the dance for the vote in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, they excluded him from it. They told him not to come to Atlanta because they didn't uh, want to offend uh, Southerners. I mean, it becomes a Southern rights movement after 1890. You know, um, so... But, you know, but relationships are, and particularly these kinds of relationships, political relationships are complicated. I mean, if you look at um, there are people who are angry on political levels, but they're friends. Uh, I mean, I, I have that experience myself. 
Mm-hmm. We're friends on personal levels, uh, but not on, on political levels, um, uh, or, or vice versa. Certainly. Uh, so it's it, it is a it is a complex uh, uh, re- re- relationship. Um, uh, but Anthony also Anthony admired all uh, good activists. We're talking with Paula Giddings about the the complicated history that uh, and that involves the ratification of the 19th Amendment and the fight for voting rights uh, throughout American history. Paula Giddings is a professor of Africana Studies at Smith College. She describes herself as a journalist who writes history, not strictly a historian, but she's still the author of an award-winning biography of Ida Wells called Ida, A Sword Among Lions. And this question about Ida Wells uh, from one of our listeners, and by the way, if you have a question for Professor Giddings, please text it to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794. You can also tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it in. But um, Paula, this this, uh, question for you, could you talk about Ida B. Wells' lasting impact on today's political landscape? I'd be interested to hear more on how Wells transformed journalism since she was recently awarded the posthumous Pulitzer Prize in 2020. Yeah, how how, how about that? Times really are a change. I know. (laughs) Uh, uh, But it it goes back and forth. But um, uh, Wells is one of the earliest investigative reporters uh, after the uh, when she bec- when she gets interested when she gets involved with the issue of lynching um, she begins to understand <clears throat> that the false accusations uh, against black men raping white women which is the rationale for this sort of for lynchings just beginning to increase increase exponentially across uh, the country uh, when she begins to understand that um, that this is not truth, this is, this is not uh, what's really going on with it, with a with a few examples she knew, particularly the one in it, uh, the lynching in Memphis, which sort of gets her started, uh, thinking about lynching in a particular way, she begins to actually investigate lynchings. She goes to the scene of lynchings. She um, uh, calls uh, material about in the, in the newspapers to see what the what the what the true reasons and rationales uh, for uh, these these lynchings uh, are. She interviews witnesses, uh, you know, going to the sites of lynchings, and she begins to, which I which we begin to see now as well. She begins to not only use. Uh, statistics, which she does very effectively, and statistics is actually kind of a new innovation in this period of the of the nineteenth uh, century, late nineteenth century social sciences. She uses that, but she also tells the story of many of those who were lynched. She finds out who they are. She finds out what their families were like. She finds out how people thought of. Uh, these uh, lynch victims uh, in the community. She talks about what the true circumstances are, were of these lynchings. She understands that blacks, as we see now, uh, are being are, are criminalized often in the press. Uh, she understands what happens, at, at which we're seeing now. I, I, I was just thinking uh, about this. You know, at one point she says, you know, lynching used to be sort of in the backwoods and they thought ignorant people in the backwoods were lynching 
uh, 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 blacks, but she also begins to tell when this begins to change. She says, you know, lynching is now on Main Street. And I was thinking about George Floyd with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, lynching is no longer in the backwoods. It's in, the, it's in our cities. It's in, on Main Street. They start lynching people from telephone poles to me, which is a symbol of modern America, who's going to be even more violent than uh, pre-modern America. Uh, so she, so, so, and, and she understands that the press lies. People, we think about that now. Now we don't trust a lot of institutions, uh, but people didn't think the press lied so much before. Um, she begins to really understand what they're doing and how they're in a consp- how they're in the conspiratorial uh, network uh, with uh, with with the government with people involved with the economy, you know. And she also sees that there was, a before Ida Wells, there was a sense, even though a lot of black people said, well, well, lynching is terrible, but there was this kind of assumption that you probably did something wrong if you were in that position to be lynched. You know, Booker T. Washington used to say, who Booker T. Washington, who was the president of Tuskegee, uh, and who was completely the opposite of Wells and his thinking. Like he would say, he said, well, you know, no Tuskegee uh, graduate ever got lynched. It was like if you lived a respectable life, you, di- you weren't in that, you didn't put yourself in that position. But she begins to turn that completely around when she says, well, you know, it's the respectable people who are the targets mm-hmm. because they're more competitive mm-hmm. economically, et cetera. And so this idea that if you just behave yourself, you're going to be protected in this country, you're wrong. You better mobilize. Uh, you, you, you better have political power. And you better protest. Another question for you, uh, Professor Giddings, about your perspective on uh, Ida Wells's role in developing international solidarity campaigns for human rights. Ida Wells was, in, in 1893 and 1894, Ida Wells is invited uh, to the British Isles uh, for her, with her anti-lynching campaign. Uh, and she's actually very successful uh, in the British Isles. This is actually is one of the high points uh, of the campaign, particularly the second um, time she goes to uh, Great Britain. Uh, because she she's able to um, she's able to 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 uh, articulate and get people to understand of 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 of, of race being a glo- a, a global uh, issue and racism being a global issue. At the time she's in Great Britain, uh, of course um, there there's also foment. Uh, going uh, also a, a lot of act, uh, activism uh, in Great Britain because of of how Great Britain is is, is treating its uh, uh, um, uh, people in India. It's it's um, because of uh, Britain's own colonialism, and so she begins to awaken people to this larger idea of what is happening uh, to uh, people uh, of color. And why it's happening, it's not personal. It has a lot to do with economic uh, exploitation. Uh, it has to do with the need of 
a whiteness uh, to uh, perpetuate itself uh, and to remain uh, 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 superior in, in, in many ways. Uh, and so um, in, in Great Britain, actually, they actually form an anti-lynching committee uh, in Great Britain, uh, which includes a number of very important activists, uh, includes the Duke of Argyll and the Bishop of Canterbury and others. Uh, and so it becomes very important. And, and, and in one year, uh, at least in one year that we know of, the group of Brits come to the U.S. to investigate lynching, which, of course, drives the southern governors apoplectic <laughs> that they would uh, come and write a report on. They're trying to understand what is going on in the U.S., what is at the heart, which we need to think about now, what is the heart of this, of this depraved violence uh, that we see? Um, and uh, uh, so, so she's, she's, she, she, is quite, she is quite significant in that, in that realm as well. Professor Giddings, as we wrap up, uh, we just have another couple of minutes, but I'm really struck by um, what the fact that this history that we talk about, um, when we really unpack the history of the 19th Amendment, of the fight for voting rights, that it's not a hidden figures sort of story, as you have said. In fact, it's, we've centered it on all the wrong things and all the wrong people. Uh, well, not all the, not the, not necessarily the wrong people. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. Certainly, uh, uh, they've been important. But but what we have to understand, the one thing I'd like for us to understand, uh, is how much we've lost by not about not enfranchising uh, black women. You know, uh, uh, you the people have sort of understood in some ways the politics of marginalizing uh, black women uh, before the 19th Amendment because they needed uh, Southerners to support the, uh, 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 the amendment. And Southerners were frightfully fearful of black women becoming enfranchised. In fact, you know, they really believed that, as one of the said, that, you know, white supremacy might end <laughs> if... if if black women are enfranchised because they're so active, uh, the, uh, and that this civil rights stuff will start all over again if they get the vote. But imagine that. Imagine that. That white supremacy might have ended <laughs> in the South yeah. if black women had the vote. Imagine how the country would be different. You know, the Southerners are... You know, it, it's the same group of people who, is, who are blocking things right now <laughs> uh, and, have, and have blocked so much civil rights uh, legislation and, and progress, I Indeed. mean, for centuries. Indeed. Professor Paula Giddings is the Elizabeth A. Woodson 1922 Professor Emerita of Africana Studies at Smith College. She's the author of the book Ida, A Sword Among Lions, and she's been our Friday Forum speaker today. Professor Giddings, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Our forum today is the Cleveland Association of Phi Beta Kappa Endowed Forum. Established in 1947, the Cleveland Association of Phi Beta Kappa seeks to support the ideals of society through academic, social, and community-based programs. Phi Beta Kappa celebrates excellence in the liberal arts and sciences and champions freedom of thought. We're grateful for their partnership. 
Special thanks today, too, as well to the Eaton Corporation, Delta Sigma Theta, and the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland are formed today as a result of their efforts and their advocacy, and we're grateful for their collaboration and engagement. Thanks, too, as well to you and members like you and sponsors and donors who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. We have two such conversations coming up next week. Wednesday, we'll talk about the movement to add public comment to Cleveland City Council meetings, and we'll feature a mock virtual public comment session. You can participate. Check us out online to find out more. Also, next Friday, we'll talk with outgoing Downtown Cleveland Alliance President and CEO Joe Marinucci about his long and storied career with the organization and where he sees downtown headed post-pandemic. Find out more at our website, cityclub.org, and check out our archives there or on PBS Passport, Roku, Amazon, Firestick, Vimeo, and also our YouTube channel. I'm Dan Malthrop. It's been your Friday Forum. Stay close in your hearts, my friends. It won't be long before we can be close in person once again. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.